If we just sing that line in isolation, we say, Lord, I need you because I knew when I was 12 years old, I needed to accept Jesus as Savior. Some preacher showed me that or someone in my family. And so I said, OK, I need the Lord in that moment. Or um, I was in a real bind in college. I wasn't sure if I was going to pass my final, which was graduate or not graduate. So I really needed the Lord then. Or when our child was uh, sick and we didn't know what the future was going to hold and everything, I really needed the Lord then. We have, we have statements of acknowledgement that we need the Lord, which are the kind of no-duh statements. Like if we go, well, you know, I've been around long enough. I know I need Jesus. And we can look back over the timeline and say, I needed him then, and then I needed him a little bit later. I really needed him at that point. And we can spread those things out, and we can just make a statement of fact. Lord, I needed you. He could be... Like my wife might be tempted to be and respond and say, yeah, I know. I've been trying to show you that. What I love about that song is we added a phrase to it. We said, Lord, I need you every hour I need you. Every hour is a statement of acceptance. Every hour is a statement of acknowledgement that I know that there's nothing in me that is ever going to be good enough to fix my dilemmas. There's never anything in me of any sufficiency that I'm going to be able to draw on that's going to get me out of this jam. And so not just in moments or blips on the timeline I needed Jesus, but every hour along the way. And that's when I think the work of the Holy Spirit starts to transform our lives is when we say every hour because it's humility, it's, it's surrender, it's, it's just agreeing to what he's known all along. And when he hears that from us, he says, now I think you're ready for things to start changing. And so I thought that was a, a pretty fitting way to get into what we're going to talk about this morning, because um, we're going to look at the uh, briefly, we're going to look at the life of a man who um, we're going to look at a guy who had to come to a place where I think he went through that transition. I think he knew there were moments in his life that he needed Jesus. And then it became this thing, eventually, every hour I need thee. And most of us will be familiar with the name Peter. Most of us will be familiar with the Apostle Peter. Um, but for, for the benefit of those of you that aren't too familiar with him, maybe you've seen his name on church signs and things like that. St. Peter, you've probably heard. He's been the, uh, the setup to a lot of jokes. You know, if you say, you know, going to see St. Peter at the pearly gates and all that kind of stuff. And so there's more depth to Peter than the surface uh, things that we know. And I don't claim to be a, a Peter expert. Um, a lot of these things I've, I've just known in snippets and stuff. And the Lord's really helped me put some of this together this week. Whether or not it comes out of my mouth the way that I was seeing it this week is an entirely different thing. So you might have to pick up a book and do some reading on the life of Peter yourself to see some of the dots that I'm trying to connect here. But what's interesting about Peter is that he, like the other, the other 11 disciples, was handpicked by Jesus to follow him. And so um, Peter, being from a rough background, and we get to see his personality play out the more he spends with Jesus, Jesus saw fit to have a Peter on his team. And once you see who Peter is, you're like, okay, that makes sense to have a Peter on your team. You need a guy like that. And then also, on the negative side, once you get to see who Peter is, you go, oh, I see why he only picked one. Because if you have 12 people following you around, you only have room for one Peter. And we don't have the time to go into all the reasons of, of why Peter was who he was, but we have a few uh, snippets, a few highlights. 
The interesting thing about Peter was that he was invited by Jesus to live life with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He was, he was given a front row seat to who was going to be the most controversial yet most effective figure in all of history, who's the one that we know as our Savior. And Peter probably had some understanding on the surface, but I think also what most of those guys would have been experiencing is they were being drawn to an invitation. They didn't even realize how big it was. They didn't know what they were being accepted to. They didn't know the journey they were really embarking on. But yet he, do- he dove in and he engaged in it. And, and, and when we see who Peter is, we say, okay, that's probably the way he would have done it. It's been like a new adventure. Sure, let's go. Let's give it a, let's give it a shot. Peter was going to be the one who probably in his classroom was going to be the first one to raise his hand. And he probably wasn't just going to be the first one to raise his hand. He was going to be in the front row so the teacher couldn't see any other hands. And he was going to do this as she walked around going, I do have the answer. Stop looking for someone else to pick on. He wanted to be the first one with the answer. He wanted to be the, the first one. If, if people were standing around, a bunch of guys are going, how are we going to lift that? He'd be like, this way. And he'd dive right in and probably pull his back out, giving it a shot. Because he couldn't stand watching the indecision happen, seeing, not seeing any action happen. So he needed to get something going. He wanted to be the catalyst in all those environments. And so it should be no shock to us that when the disciples are out on a boat and it's stormy and dark and, and all this kind of stuff and the visibility is poor, but Jesus isn't with the disciples, when he, when he uh, performs the miracle of walking on the water and approaching their, their, uh, their boat and everyone else starts to panic and, and stuff, that Jesus, as he gets closer, says, stop freaking out. It's me. I'm coming to you. It's almost like I don't know how much time is involved in the passage because it doesn't give us a, a break there, but it's almost, it almost looks like without hesitation, Peter says, okay, if that's really you, I want to come out to you. I've got to try this thing. You know, we look at that as a, this, this great statement of faith, in which it is. I mean, it's just picture stepping out on China Lake thinking you're going to float, right, on the pads of your feet but let alone on the sea, and it's raging. and it's, I mean, there's a lot of courage and a lot of faith that takes place. But, but also keep in mind, this is the guy who didn't want to just sit around and watch things happen and him not be a part of it. And so it, he's the type of guy with that kind of adrenaline who's going to say, I, I want to give this a try. Can I do it? And Jesus said, yeah, come on, I'll give it a shot. And uh, John or- Ortberg wrote a great book with, a, with an awesome title. It says, if you're going to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. And, and Peter was one to keep getting out of the boat. He was willing to give it a shot. So we focus on the fact that he took his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink. Jesus had to lift down and reach him up and rescue him. But think about the type of person it took to even get out of the boat in the first place. Peter exercised tremendous faith, but he also exercised tremendous adrenaline rush. He wasn't going to wait. And of course, he was rescued and things went well, but sometimes Peter's tongue got him in trouble. The more he went with Jesus and the more he he, uh, wanted to be involved and he wanted to be seen as loyal, Jesus had to deal with that in a couple of different ways. I want us to look at a passage of scripture here in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus is, um, well, the scriptures will tell us here. It says in verse 21, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. Let's just stop there for a second. Jesus is starting. It says he's beginning a conversation, and he's got loyal to a fault, Peter, who's got his back. He's going to make sure he's okay. 
And he starts telling his guys, listen, guys, I am going to Jerusalem and the beginning of my sufferings is going to take place. He said, I'm going to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And Peter's thinking, I can take them. I'll even be killed. And he even shares his his words of hope. He doesn't leave this a mystery. He says, and be raised up on the third day. Jesus is laying out the plan. It's not like he didn't give Peter all the pieces. But Peter takes him aside, and you can picture this, you know, kind of underneath his voice, but very gruff and very energetic. Peter takes him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. I'm not going to let it happen. Not on my watch, Jesus. They're not, getting, they're not laying a hand on you. So picture Peter who is enthusiastic, who is faithful, who is energetic, the first one out of the boat. Do you think it clicked to him for a minute that he was stopping Jesus from doing what he was sent to do? Not at all. He was thinking, Jesus, you can always count on me. I am on your team till the end. Jesus recognizing how much of this was about Peter instead of how much was it was about God's plan, gives this response. Jesus turns and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Again, the text is, is direct and it's, and it's stern, but do you picture Peter's reaction in that? I wonder sometimes... I picture, I guess all throughout the years, I've always pictured Peter just going, oops, my bad. I didn't mean, I didn't want him to call me Satan. I guess that boy, I guess I played the wrong card that time. I picture Peter, Peter being severely offended. And, and, and almost in a sense of comparing, like, look, you don't understand. These guys don't understand how much you mean to me. You don't understand. Are, you're going to call me Satan and you're going to say I'm not on board with the plan. I've always been on board with the plan. You're my plan. I'm always here for you. How can you say those things to me? But Jesus, knowing that even a guy who means well can make his response all about him, puts him right in his place as directly as possible and says, get behind me. You are in league with our greatest enemy and you don't even see it. If Jesus had gone any gentler with a guy of Peter's character and his makeup, the point would have been lost. The argument would have continued. Uh, Peter would have thought to himself, well, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get to him tomorrow. I'll, I'll explain my point to him tomorrow. He's just not seeing what I'm getting at here. Jesus was going to put an end to that real quick. These are the kinds of things that, that mark uh, Peter's uh, highlight film for us. You know, because of who he was, he got things done. And we like to say things like, um, well, if you never try anything, uh, you'll, you know, you'll never fail. And so we look at that as maybe that could be a comforting thing. But the person who never tries anything, who doesn't experience that failure, also isn't the same person, is the same person who never comes out of that failure and gets things done. So often the people that we look at and say, wow, they've really accomplished something or they've built something great or whatever, we know that there's always a backstory that's that's completely laced with failure, with restarts, with reboots. And so Peter was willing to be the one to constantly reboot his strategy, constantly reassess his actions, constantly experience hoof and mouth disease for us, for you and I to have an example of what that tenacity looks like. Over in Luke 22, Jesus is... uh, 
is, is sharing a very similar um, set of circumstances. He's starting to talk again to his disciples about what needs to happen. And again, uh, Peter isn't quite uh, swallowing the whole picture. It says in verse 31 where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, that's Peter's other name. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Could you imagine what he might mean behind the scenes of that? I got to be honest with you. I'm glancing over that until this, this moment. And I'm looking at this going, oh, wait a second. Jesus, is he indicating to Peter that I know the conversations that are happening in the heavenly realm? And Satan has come and asked permission, just like he did about Job. He has specifically singled you out and wants permission to pin you up against the wall. That's a little creepy. (laughs) What does that say about Peter even? Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail in you when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go to both prison and even death. Peter, of course, is going to say that. That's who he is. And I don't doubt that he means it. But the story plays out a little differently. A little bit later on in the text, Jesus is captured. He's betrayed by Judas. The heat is really cranking up. And the story tells us in verse 55, it says, this is after all the events and the kind of the trials underway and all that sort of stuff. Jesus is being taken out. It's very, very clear that this is not going to end well. Verse 55 says, after they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard, these are the onlookers and the crowds and stuff. And they sat down together. Peter was sitting, or you could almost put in in parentheses there, hiding among them. And a servant girl, interesting detail, just a tiny little servant girl seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him said, this man was with him too. But he denied it saying, "Uh, woman, I, I don't know him. A little later, another saw him and said, you're one of them too. I know you are. But Peter says, no, I'm not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, I do not know what you're talking about. That was predicted just verses before by Jesus when he said, not only will you not go to prison with me and even unto death, before this night is over, you're going to deny me three times in a row. You're going to string them together so fast it's going to catch you off guard. Sure enough, it's exactly what happens. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. I want to let Peter off the hook so badly after you see how much zeal and passion and accomplishment he brings to the table. And Jesus has to keep exposing the root of Peter's heart. Peter, you are so eager to be seen as loyal and faithful to me. It is so much a part of you that is dripping out of you. Lord, you can count on me that it's a self-serving, even though he is loyal, even though he is dedicated. It's all about Peter. And my heart breaks for Peter as the Lord turns and looks at him and says, this is what I was talking about. 
The scripture says that he went out and wept bitterly. When you're on a mountain that high, the valley is even lower. So Peter knows what he's talking about when he says, every hour I need you, Lord. I would say that prior to this moment, Peter experienced, yeah, I needed him then and I needed him to bail me out of a a drowning sea and I needed him to show up at this point in time. And Peter probably was growing in his relationship with, with the Lord, but probably was looking at, you know, I need the Lord, but he needs me too. Let's not forget that point. I'm the first one on the scene. I'm the most faithful of the bunch. And then at this point, Peter had just been taken so low to see in a mirror who he really was by his own betrayal and denial of Jesus to where I think you start to see Peter shift and things start to change. And even Jesus underscores this point. After Jesus is crucified and he's risen again and he's seen by those as uh, all those witnesses and stuff, he says, go and tell the disciples and Peter that I've come back. Jesus singles Peter out and says, I want him to know especially the forgiveness that I'm offering to him. That even though I I knew that these things would happen, even though I know he'd put his foot in his mouth, even though I know he couldn't control his own flesh, I want him to know that he's still mine. Jesus does that for Peter. Peter, after that point, like so many of the disciples after seeing a resurrected Jesus, knowing that he was really who he said he was, no matter how much he boasted out loud, he believed it, no, how, no matter how much we picked on Thomas for needing to feel the sight of Jesus and everything, all of those guys were completely rejuveni- rejuvenated, which is such a weak word for what happened to them after knowing that Jesus did raise again. And they go out and they set the world on, on, on fire, metaphorically speaking, and plant churches all over the place. And Peter is somebody who can no longer... Um, be denied but his enthusiasm his zeal is now mixed with humility because he knows he let the savior down he knows it's not about the strength of peter anymore and so now he starts um, singing a song that's like lord i need you but now he can say every hour i need you it used to be most of the time i need peter and sometimes i need jesus now i'm seeing it completely differently so peter pens a letter to, um, as, as the scriptures say in his first letter to these folks, to a scattered group of aliens and strangers, not the ones with the big eyes and antennas, but people that are living in a foreign land under a foreign culture, foreign set of rules, and not politically speaking, but he's speaking to those who are in Christ. Your circumstances are radically transformed. And he's also talking to a scattered group of aliens and strangers. And so he says there are believers all over um, Asia Minor under the Roman Empire, and they are scattered. They're, they're singled out. They're, they're, they're in some of the worst situations that we would ever want uh, people in battle to be in, which is that isolated, easy to be picked off because they're not in groups and that kind of thing. There might have been pockets of groups, but his letter is specifically pointed to, towards the, the diaspora, the, the ones that are just spread out and in, in, in all over the place. And Peter wants to send them a message of what to focus on because he knows things that the, the, the burner on the stove in the kitchen just got turned up. 
And so as they are going through the decades planting these churches, Jesus has long since been risen again and has ascended into heaven. And the churches are starting to be set ablaze. Nero, in charge of the Roman Empire, is also setting things on fire. So the rumor had it that he's burning Rome and he's starting to blame Christians and everything. So all these fires are being set, both the metaphoric kind and the, figure, and the literal kind. Paul is going before the, um, the, uh, the, the, the courts in, in the, the Roman courts. He's successful in his first defense, but then the second one fails, and he's, he's martyred, and, and Peter's feeling the same pressure, and, and, and eventually Peter's martyred under the same thing. And, and so all of this is happening, and, and the Roman Empire is starting to realize that this church thing that's building, these people that are believing in this this false Messiah that we killed a long time ago and everything, they're actually starting to be seen separate from Judaism because before it was kind of blanket covered. The Roman Empire was okay with Judaism because they worked out this arrangement, you Jews do your thing and we'll do our thing. And then all of a sudden this, this growing sect, this growing offshoot was starting to get rebellious, quote unquote, and, and Nero started to panic and that's where all the the fire started and the blaming of Christians and all the weird torture and all that kind of stuff. Peter is seeing all of this starting. Again, he's in the front row as Peter always is. So Peter sends out a letter to the diaspora and says, look, a storm is coming. I almost get the image of when you knock down a bee's nest, if you've ever had fun with that, when the spray foam stuff doesn't do what they said it does. What's the deal with a hornet being different from a wasp, by the way? It's like, you anybody done this before? I'm sorry, I'm sidetracking here. It's definitely not in my notes. It says on the can, spray this at wasps and everything, and you cover them all in foam, and they're supposed to start... Tr- and then you don't know the difference between a wa- hornet and a wasp. That's me. And you got the wrong can, and you're still drowning them, and they're like, I'm not dead yet. I don't understand that. I get the sense that Peter and Paul have basically knocked the hornet's nest on the ground. And you hear that slow buildup of the buzz starting to pick up. They're starting to spread out and you're all running for your lives. And I think Peter's sending this letter, this first letter that he's sending out to the scattered churches saying, the bees are going to arrive in your neighborhood soon. You need to get focused. You need to... Focus on the most important things. Now, these people are scattered. They're under some forms of oppression. The letter is going to, First Peter is going to spell that out, some of the trials that they're under, some of the persecutions. But he's basically saying, you haven't seen nothing yet. Is this parallel starting to make sense to us today? Where we're starting to hear a little bit of the bee swarm? We're getting rumors of things coming our way and we're hearing that, that some of those persecutions are, are coming to our doorstep and everything. You can almost see the enemy's armies advancing over the hill. You know, whatever metaphor we want to throw at it. And I'm just drawn to this letter of Peter because I'm thinking, wow, don't we need this message today? We live relative lives of comfort and ease. Some of us are going through some tremendous suffering. Please don't hear that I'm belittling that. But collectively as a people, and even if we compare the suffering that's to come and everything like that, do we really understand how focused we need to be? When is the best time to prepare for a battle? Is it it on game day? 
you know, we've got the Super Bowl coming up soon and everything. Do you think they're not watching film relentlessly? Do you think they're not studying the other team? Do you think they're trying to get their game plan together before the crowds are drowning out their microphones and all that kind of stuff and they're just not hearing one another? The best time to prepare for battle is when it's pretty much uh, comfortable to do so. And I fear for America, I fear for Maine, I fear for Waterville, I fear for Faith, I fear for Brent Small that I am not preparing for what's coming because I have so much more competing for my attention. So what would Peter say to me after he's kicked the nest down and he sees the bees are swarming, he says, they're approaching you, they'll be there soon. Well, let me share with you one verse out of this letter. And I'm hoping that um, as, as the weeks go on and stuff and, and PB and I are working out sort of when I'm filling in and, and helping with him and stuff, I'll be able to revisit this letter from time to time. So I'm going to ask you to hang on to some of these introductory thoughts, this background and this setup, because I will, obviously won't be able to repeat it you know, each and every time. And I would welcome cheating. You can read ahead. You can study First Peter, and you can get an anticipation for some of the, the things that are to come. But, but Peter, in, in chapter 1, in verse 7, we're going to jump in mid-sentence here, so it's going to be a little clunky. He's going to say, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result. This is the sum of what he wants us to focus on. To result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying that the culmination of the instruction that we're going to see in this letter is to result in the praise and glory and honor at finding out and seeing who Jesus really is. And that's what we've benefited from going through Mark, is seeing who is this Jesus really. And as he is elevated, as he is held high, and we start to recognize who Jesus is, the, the point is, is that Peter's saying, I don't write this instruction to you. I don't give you hope for the future so that they'll write great stories about you as a church. So that they'll look back on you like the 300 or whatever that event was back in history and stuff like that, that you made your stand and that you came through as gold and, and you withstood and everything. Peter's basically saying, I don't know what's going to happen to you. I don't know what your future is, but I do know that if you focus on the glory, honor, and praise of the revelation of Jesus Christ going into this, he will be made famous for the things that he deserves to be famous for. God is famous for lots of things. The world has made him famous for things they think about him that he really isn't. They've made him famous for a portion of what he's done in history or how he's acted without taking in the whole picture. But these, the glory of God is the things that he deserves to be famous for. And how you and I engage in the coming battle, how you and I keep our wits about us, how you and I focus on this one salient point that we are to be about the glory, honor, and praise of Jesus Christ means that what they're going to see is that, wow, he really is faithful he really does love those people it's not going to be about how strong and victorious we were in fact it may not appear on the surface that we were strong or victorious it may appear that we were miserable failures just like peter had to be in order for jesus glory his forgiveness and his mercy to be front and center so hopefully we're going to see 
what Peter's instruction is for us as we go through this letter piece by piece so that we can be all about his praise, his honor, and his glory. Would you stand as we close in prayer?